lousy smarch weather in honor of another march rolling around. Yes, march again. If you could watch a movie on the big screen with 50 of your friends and everybody would be safe, what movie are you programming? But Dave, how can it be March again when it's always been March? You've always been here. Uh, I'm Katie Rich, and I feel like this is an overly trendy answer, but it's true that seeing Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar gave me a strong desire to throw a themed movie screening followed by a dance party to a techno remix of My Heart Will Go On. I might stay home for that. Uh, Even fair. better. Uh, I'm hey, Matt Patches. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> I um, You know, I think a lot of people would go with big, like, loud action movies for this, but I'm with you, Katie. I'm going to go with, like, Airplane. I want to see mm-hmm. the funniest movie with all the gags that everybody knows, but they're still going to laugh at them. I think that would be a hoot. I want to hear other people laugh. Hey, it's me, David the Seven, and I think it's because it was the first movie I saw in, like, my neighbor's surround sound home theater in the mid-90s. Uh, but my answer is going to be Jurassic Park, even though, you know, everybody's seen it. I, you know, maybe we could all do a shout along or something. Be fun. Uh, and I am David Ehrlich. And I, I mean, there, the movie that first came to mind is Girl Walk All Day, which I wrote about right after the pandemic started as like, you know, two months into it. We were all such babes in the woods about um, that being a movie that captured the New York that had sort of been taken from us temporarily. But I am going to go with Jackie Chan's, well, he didn't direct it, but he's the auteur, uh, Rumble in the Bronx, which my wife and some friends and I watched over text two weeks ago and is a masterpiece that does not get mentioned enough among top tier Jackie Chan movies and deserves to. Holy shit. What a movie. The joyous time would be had by all rumbling in Vancouver. I'm I'm imagining like a Washington Square Park outdoor screening of Girl Walk all day. That'd be great. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 338. It is Pandemic 50. Holy crap. We're at Pandemic 50. Uh, it's the week of Wednesday, March 3rd, 2021. That's the day that in 1863, the Arizona Territory was created. Good for you, oh, Arizona. I think that was last week's. Oh, you're right. It was last week. I was just going to say. I feel like I remember uh, right about Arizona. Oh, no. <laughs> you know what happened is I got to Pandemic 50, and I got to March 3rd, 2021, and I got depressed. And I'm like, <laughs> who cares what happened? I'm, I'm surprised you didn't get depressed when you got to Arizona. Which is that's, the, the that's the day that in 2020 we all did some normal shit and didn't really think about it and yeah what were you doing on march 3rd 2021 i was thinking about like maybe going to movies this weekend or something and it's like oh yeah depressing but we could still celebrate arizona why not it's did a whole movies state come now. out this weekend last year did like was this the hunt or something to or bring like up the hunt again. I think the hunt was a week later. I want to say the hunt was like March 11th. So yeah, I feel like the hunt was like was like the week. It was like March 12th or something. Like the weekend that like all of a sudden everyone was like, "Oh shit, we're not going to the." This might have been this might have been first cow week. And there were so many first cow. I feel like first cow came out five times, but well, first cow is a <laughs> feeling. Right. It's less of a. Week it's true. Like it's true. <laughs> uh anyway we don't know what day it is or when we do know when arizona was created but that's about all uh and we also know that you guys have been leaving reviews apparently by the truck full a kong size number of reviews yeah just to reiterate ironically 
Uh, the, the current rule is that as long as we continue to get at least one new review every week, we will not be discussing, mercifully, Godzilla vs. King Kong on the podcast in any capacity. Until it comes out. Uh, we'll see. Out. We'll see. If we can set a magic threshold of reviews that will preclude us from talking about the movie full stop, that would really be amazing. But uh, And I, I was saying before we started recording that uh, if the overwhelming truckload of reviews, the, the King Kong cargo-sized shipload of reviews that we've been getting relative to our normal weeks is any indication America... Uh, is is voting overwhelmingly? They have no interest in in thinking about Kong versus Godzilla or Godzilla versus Kong, whatever the fuck it's called. Anyway, Warner Brothers, you should be shaking in your Carl Denham boots because you got a problem. Uh, anyway, we have a whole bunch of reviews. They're all really short. They're all just people doing whatever they can to chip in to save off the conversation that we're not having. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, we got and NFCKN saying the only podcast I'm able to listen to during war. Love this podcast. I've been a listener for years now, and I don't know why, but y'all are the only podcast I'm able to get through during quarantine? Question mark. Thank you for having a better understanding of virology and epidemiology in your latest episode than people I know with MDs attached to their names. Oh, boy. McDonald's. This podcast. Yeah, make- <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is essential for any avid movie or TV watchers out there. Honestly, love all the hosts. They really grow on you. Very helpful. Uh, do we have any uh, recent uh, insights into the coronavirus pandemic? Have we learned anything in the last week that we should share with the masses, starting with the hospitals and working our way down? I mean, I feel like maybe, maybe for Pandemic 52, it's only in two weeks, mm-hmm. we do we do a little segment about what, what are we going to do. Like, I feel like we should talk. We, last year at that time, we were talking to Eric Vespi about what film festivals were going to be like that year. Uh, we were probably wrong, but I think it'd be interesting to revisit the pandemic on. Should we go back and listen to that episode and like play clips of ourselves and marvel at how young we were? Uh, I don't know if I want to stand by what I said the first week of the pandemic, but no, maybe. that's the whole thing is you go back and listen. You're like, ah, Dave, how oh, we, yes. weren't even, we, we weren't even wearing masks back then. What we didn't know. Could Listening to us being Kong. like, once Tenet comes out, it's over. <laughs> Pretty much. That's how we got here. I think we, we all were, in a way, wearing masks back then. And when this pandemic mm, is wow, over, yeah. we will remove them once and for all and mm. re-enter society as our true selves. Fully transparent. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Jeff Austin says, a question that boggles the mind. I love this show truly, but why, nay, how, after all these years of podcasting, does David still sound like he's talking through a can on a string? And I think Patches is actually speaking into his microphone approximately 38% of the time that he means to be heard. And still, I love you all. Well, Jeff Austin, that's very sweet in spite of our failings. Uh, I don't know. I got our this, failings. I got the our failings. Mostly yours, Katie. Um, but I am uh, heroically taking the Did brunt David of this. just drop his microphone? While <laughs> yeah, he's like, I, I don't know why it's so bad. No, I, I, I don't know. I picked up my fine mic. Literally, wow, you sound the, great, David. Okay, cheapest, never touch it. Cheapest <laughs> don't, mic. Don't could, touch it while it's recording. <laughs> the cheapest. Wait, do I sound noticeably better now? Because I did yeah. move it approximately three inches. Yeah. Great. You sound much better. Mouth, well, or? Jeff Austin, uh, the most helpful review we've ever gotten. Problem solved. Uh, there's no accounting for patches <laughs> in any way in life, but uh, so it goes. Bay Area represent uh, says thanks. Uh, patches, oh, I just if he's saying something I don't like, I just mix him down so everybody gets mad at him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do want to point out that the title of Bay Area Represents Review was Please Review Raised by Wolves. 
Uh, <laughs> it's up to Pat. I mean, Patches can, can I choose try. it as a topic uh, oh, well. by, by Fiat for a future episode. Um, I've already seen That's a true. pilot. You have that in for now. a penny, in for a pound. So it's up to you, Patches. Uh, Vishnu21386 says, long overdue review. I love this podcast. The first episode I listened to featured a discussion on how Patches had watched The Force Awakens without consuming any promotional material. I found it amusing and have listened to every episode of the host's amusing banter since then. When Dave Seven and Patches canceled the show, I felt bad because I'd never let the host know how much I appreciated their show. It's probably better that I waited this long to send a review, though, because initially I had the standard host rankings of Katie, Dave, Patches, then David. Wow. The standards. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Everyone that was knows. Set in stone. And now I still have the same order, but it's a lot closer. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> David goes on you after a while. <laughs> I'm catching up. Uh, Maybe in a hundred episodes, I will, I will even have lapped patches. Uh, Joel, Joe, rather, M136 says, loved it. Loved it. Past tense. Let's Uh-oh. see where this leads. Uh, I left Twitter about a year ago. You all know how hellish it can become at times. And one of the many things I do miss is reading some of you bunch's tweets. When I found out that you all make a podcast together, I said, this is worth a shot. And it didn't disappoint. My first episode was 337, the Minari video games in Pee Wee Anderson one. And like the title of my review says, I loved it. Oh, I see. It's all making sense now. Place pieces clicking into place. <laughs> Can't wait to hear more from you. And I wish you all Someone just the found best. out we had a podcast. That's so kind of you, Joe M136. We wish you all the best as well. I even wish Vishnu21386 the best. They're really trying. They're pulling for me. And I appreciate that. Uh, and I think that's all we got for it's this week. It's a group effort. Uh, thank you all so much for sparing us the indignity of having to talk about the sequel to uh, the Shonda that was King of All Monsters. Uh, please continue to go King on. King of the Monsters? King of All Something Monsters. Something like that? Is it King of All Monsters? Yeah. King, no, of the King, Monsters. King of the Monsters. You're thinking of Destroy All Monsters, David. Whatever. This is why you guys need more Godzilla segments, That's right. really. <laughs> um, please go on iTunes and review us at Fighting in the War Room. We'll leave a review on the show, and we will not be discussing Godzilla vs. King Kong. Uh, mm. uh, thank you. Bum, 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 bum. Well, we are still catching up with the movies that feel like they have sort of been out forever, but also are just not coming out and are available to watch <laughs> if you can keep track of where they are out, which is not as easy as it should be. We wanted to talk about One Night in Miami, which is playing on Amazon Prime. I believe it's been playing on Amazon Prime for like probably since the beginning of January. It's been out there for a while. Um, if you watch the Golden Globes, you heard about it because Regina King was nominated. But of course, uh, you didn't watch the Golden Globes, so you would not. Well, have- yeah, about 7 million people watch the Golden Globes. Really? Uh, yeah the ratings were like literally half of last year i mean we don't need to make this a segment about the golden globes but i get why no one watched it like who cares it seems rather about- pointed that we're not one. doing a segment about the golden globes yeah, yeah i seem like that but that seems like a, a feature not a bug i yeah. didn't watch uh well maybe you haven't heard of one night miami then in which case we'll tell you about it it is the directorial debut of regina king 
It is based on a play that imagines uh, a real night that happened where uh, Cassius Clay, soon to become Muhammad Ali, had a fight in Miami. He was on his way to joining the Nation of Islam, uh, and it imagines him interacting in a hotel room with Malcolm X, uh, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke. And they are uh, played by varying levels of famous people. It is based on the play in that it's all mostly in one room and is them kind of having long, in-depth conversations with each other. And um, it kind of revisits this one pivotal moment in history with four real people in a semi-imaginary situation. Uh, I saw this movie at Toronto in September, so it's been a minute. I did like it. I thought uh, Kingsley Benadir, who plays Malcolm X, was kind of electrifying in this major role. And not to talk about awards again, but I'm a little disappointed by the way he's receded a little bit in a uh, crowded Best Actor field. Um, I don't know. Did, did you guys have other noteworthy standouts besides him in this movie? Uh, Leslie Odom Jr., I think, is delivering a performance that I like. It's hard for me now to tell what's just the good Leslie Odom Jr. performance or if he's like becoming the character because he just seems like the right person to play Sam Cooke, especially not just because of the singing, but because of like the tenor of his voice. For, and... for a true testament to Leslie Odom Jr.'s talent, I encourage you, and really only under these circumstances could I possibly encourage you to do this in good faith, to go watch Sia's music in which he, despite having to do unspeakable things uh, and be involved in the scene, the one scene that above all others was deemed so offensive that they removed it from the theatrical cut, uh, still What, what did he is... do in that? Oh, the, the blackface fantasy dance scene? No. That's still in the movie. Wait, that's a real thing? That's in the movie? I don't remember the blackface, but I, I have gone to therapy to do everything in my power to exercise this movie from my memory. Oh my um, but the uh, no, there's a scene where he practices. I can't remember what the actual name of the, the practice is, but it's like forced, maybe just forced restraint on the character of music. And oh. that was controversial. Um, not necessarily in a way that uh, people who have not cared for or been around autistic people would, would clock, but uh, in a way that is understandably r- ruffling some feathers. But anyway, anyway, but he <laughs> still comes out of that movie Teflon. I mean, it's like a big yeah. mistake. Should you know? Should have a talking to with his agent, reassess some choices. They filmed it a long time ago, but he's just so fucking likable and talented when he sings the awful songs that Sia wrote for this movie that are given no context whatsoever. Um, you still just want to hear the sounds coming out And he gets to sing songs in One Night Miami. Yes, he does. I guess Much as long as he songs. gets to sing songs, he's pretty Much great. better songs. That's what's sort of like like fuzzing my reality as to whether or not you know he's just good or if this role is close enough to his wheelhouse to do it. But either way, the resulting thing is really enjoy enjoy him in this movie. And then, uh, who is it? Eli Gorey, who plays Cassius Clay. Is that how you say mm-hmm. his last name? G-O-R, Gorey. Um, was also in uh, 2014's Godzilla. So I just wanted to bring Godzilla up here in this segment. <laughs> right, yes, of course. He played one of the soldiers. Okay, we're, we're cool. Uh, yeah, um, go ahead, Patches. I was just going to say, yeah, neither Eli Gorey as Cassius Clay or Aldous Hodge as uh, Jim Brown really pop i don't know if they get the moments to really pop they're more accessories in well, the worlds of malcolm x and yeah sam cook because or leslie Adam jr playing sam cook i mean those two sam and malcolm x have a, have a scene where they really clash where malcolm x says like you are pandering to white audiences and 
Sam Cook says, "All you are worthless. You do nothing but pontificate and stand up and talk, and we are talented people. And they have the most sparks in the whole movie. It's like almost the centerpiece. And that scene is, is really moving, and I think Leslie Odom Jr. is not here to just sing songs and, and look slick as hell, but he, I thought that dramatic beat was really powerful. But then you have Jim Brown, who seems to exist to be like, I'm I'm somewhere in between. I'm like a, a, a black icon, but I work in Hollywood. And then you have Cassius Clay, who's like, I am a great fighter, but I, you know, am considering Islam. And, and then I'm talking to Malcolm X about these serious issues. They both seem like more dramatic foils or, or pawns in the play, uh, of the screenplay, more than uh, Malcolm X and Sam Cooke, who feel like they're really jumping off the page and like doing something. So I, those I... performances get a little lost. I hate to just talk about the actors uh, in lieu of everything else, but like Katie, it has been a very long time since I've seen this movie. And to be perfectly honest, a little bit really stuck with me other than maybe the last 10 minutes. Um, but the performances did and they continue to resonate. And Aldous Hodge is just another person. Patches said he didn't really pop in this movie and relative to what someone like Kingsley Benadir is doing, that might be true. But when is that guy ever bad? I mean, like, I feel like he's really, especially with clemency. He's really charismatic in the movie. He's, I mean, like, I think clemency was, was so a big moment for him. Um, but he's been around the block for a while now. I know he's stuck on that Kevin Bacon show in Boston right now. Um, City I on just want him to get the best part. I do. Yeah, he's just, he's <laughs> so, he's so good in everything. I'm reading now on his Wikipedia page that he's going to be Hawkman in the DC film Black Adam, which is just like, right. I can feel my synapses spraying apart <laughs> in my head. But you know what? Good for him. Maybe get, for the Snyder Cut episode. Get, Actually, get he gets publicity. a really good scene early in the film that is easy to forget where he comes to his old coach, I think, his old football coach, played by Bo Bridges, who does Yeah, that scene's like, really good. I'm so impressed. Like, you're making it so big in the in the NFL or playing football, um, but you're not allowed in my house because you're black. And it's like, holy shit, what the fuck? Um, just rude. Beyond rude. Um, and that, and it sucks the wind out of him. And that scene is really good. It's just, there's lots of good scenes. It's not a very cohesive movie. And I kind of want to step uh, back at some uh, point. I'm going to make, a, about, I'm like, gonna make the counter argument right here. Uh, yeah, it's sure. too cohesive a movie. It needs to get across its message, and it has these great performances. But in terms of the construction of the plot of the movie and the actual scenes that it chooses, it is, I think, a little bit too afraid to have you misinterpret the movie at the end of it, Hmm. because it so nails down in the ending montage where everybody is. And, you know, like... You say Malcolm X and Sam Cooke have like this argument that's like the peak of the movie, but when they come back together, it's more about like them as brothers. They don't really resolve the issue that that comes up because this movie is about a very old debate, which is about like how do you best help the black community as a black person of affluence? And this is, you know, debate go continues to this day. I think the cool thing about this film is it brings the debate and it shows how these like, you know, absolutely uh, groundbreaking black artists are having this debate that we could all be having in terms of how do we personally best help these causes that we, we feel are, are uh, important. Yeah. Just but, because Malcolm X was Malcolm X doesn't mean he had it solved. Is I think the, one of the messages of the movie. Yeah. And I think uh, also, you know, if it had been like a pro Malcolm X movie, they would have like 
left Sam Cook to roast a little bit more for being so pro-capitalist or something like that. Like it's right. it's a movie that doesn't have a ton of nuance that and all the nuance from it is coming from the way it's performed. I don't think there's a lot of nuance yeah. in the writing because all the issues are like... sort of closed loops. Everybody forgives everybody exactly when they need to. It almost feels like a Greek, like an essayistic Greek play more than... Yeah, um, it feels like a know. stage play. Yeah, which, well, it feels like it a stage play, but I... But I I've seen movies adapted from stage plays that either abandon elements or it or push the cinematic value of it. And here it's really like, here's four ideas in a room talking through it. And we're going to state our theses and, and talk about and have a philosophical debate. Um, it's very rigid in that way. And why it's not cohesive for me is because I don't think that Regina King necessarily pushes this out into like cinematic territory. I don't think she's using the camera to really burrow deeper or I, I, I feel like the problem is actually moments. more on the screenplay. The more it, like the screenplay seems like it's just straight adapting a play instead of trying to create quiet moments. Like they're just constantly talking in this movie, talking, 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 the banter, banter, banter. And I want, well, there's like, the, there's the Malcolm X story he tells about seeing the Sam cook show in Boston that they actually yeah. decide to cut over and show it. And like, that's like, I wish the movie had more of that. You're absolutely right. I mean, uh, the, the... Uh, a really great way to, to be in the right headspace for appreciating the, the simple approach of uh, adapting this material to the screen is to watch Cherry immediately before it, the <laughs> Russo Brothers film, um, and you will be pleading for Hopefully for we'll find time to talk about that once people have witnessed, behold. Cherry may be the, uh, the next Godzilla vs. Kong that we are trying to you know encourage people to re- review our podcast so that we don't have to talk about but um yeah i mean there is there is a kind of spartan to the point let the character speak for themselves element to regina king's direction um and you can there are the occasional moments when she flexes um you know and i've just set up cherry as this argument that like more is not necessarily better uh when it comes to adapting really anything but um it, it is sort of impressive how cohesive and emotionally galvanizing it feels in those final 10 minutes when uh, she does, I don't want to say even reach out of her comfort zone because this is just a small sample size, but when she sort of explodes the proscenium of what the stage play allows possible and begins merging different spaces and times. Um, and I think she earns that moment by virtue of what she's done for the previous 105 minutes, but it also, um, it, yeah, it does leave you with the aftertaste of wishing that the movie had had been able to break out of that visual grammar a little bit more. Oh, yeah, like even or even early on in like the boxing matches, like those are shot and composed in a way where it's like there are people talking in the crowd. Muhammad mm-hmm. Ali's trash talking like on the thing. All the coaches are trying to yell to each other. Like all of that feels good and cohesive and movie like. It's just the middle is because it's adapted from this stage play and because it has these strong performances at the center of it, becomes them in a hotel room for a long period of time. But then you also think about Ma Rainey, which is another movie based on a play in which people are in one space for the entire time. And I think that movie feels cinematic. Uh, I'm like not entirely not stage bound, but I think it finds a way to like break up the space and to move and to kind of like rise and fall the like visual action uh, in a way that One Night Miami doesn't quite do. Yeah, yeah, there's like way too many times Malcolm X like paces to the side, to the edge of frame and then back and then delivers his next line. And I'm just like, that is exactly how you'd stage it on a, like a stage stage. Like, please try, try something like a little bit, but yeah, I think like, all, all of these I think are just things to build on. There's nothing bad 
necessarily about this movie. I don't think yeah. it dra- it's not long enough to drag. Mm-hmm. It has some great performances in it. If anything, I just wanted it to, you know, shoot its shot a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I, I, what I enjoyed about it is seeing these characters come to life and, and interact and, like, have these conversations. There's real value in the philosophical conversations that they're having. And just, uh, you know, I, there's nothing like this that I have watched in recent times. And uh, so even like Ma Rainey, I think we talked about Ma Rainey on the, on the podcast. Uh, I love August Wilson and didn't get a lot out of that movie. I liked it a little more than I think David and some of the other people here did. But um, that movie uh, has so much that you can play with cinematically that it gets it's distracting. Like I don't really I didn't get a lot out of the themes of it. And here, I will admit that I think that this movie could be a podcast or like a radio drama and would actually oh, be boy. more effective. No, I think I think by I think this movie could have done more with sound and I could have done more with performance. Uh, and and I would have liked to just boil it down even further. Like I think the problem that I have with this movie the most is that television direction has sullied what Regina King is doing a little bit here. Like the look of it and the limited amount of camera work that an indie production like this can do. TV is kind of like doing it better. Um, And when you do it as a movie, I don't know. I just needed some sort of like texture or stylistic twist, like do less, do even less than this movie offers might've been more engaging for me somehow. Pare it down. Hmm. (laughs) I, I, don't, just, I don't mean po- make it a podcast to be an insult to uh, Regina King. Well, <laughs> hold, that, hold that thought for our next segment because I will say something about a different movie. Uh, is it a spoiler to talk about the song in the very end of this movie in the context of the best original song race? No, you should you should talk about it. I'm, well, now I'm mostly curious as to how it could possibly be construed as a spoiler. I'm sure there's a way. Well, the movie ends with Leslie Adam Jr. singing Sam Cooke's most famous song, A Change Is Gonna Come. Oh, I thought I thought you meant the original to, song. To well, Scarlet no, Witch, who ent- exits the multiverse, and it's a bit that's of a spoiler. True. Yeah. No, in the body of Vision. Um, no, it's like, it, I mean, it's a spoiler because that's like kind of the emotional climax of the movie, but also, of course, he's going to sing that song. Um, but the problem is that that song is not eligible for the Oscars, but his uh, actual original song, which is so much worse, is. And I just continue to think it's a shame that, like, the actual power, like, maybe the most powerful singing moment in a movie from the past year i can't i mean it's it works so well and but like they're gonna maybe try to get the oscar of all people i should have a uh indexical memory of other alternatives ready to go but 2020 is i mean i guess from the edge of sketch of my brain who civic from eurovision i guess is the one competition or (laughs) right i happen i happen to you know it is an incredibly weak field because the academy's music branch is just like (laughs) <laughs> so self-sabotaging it's it's really hard to wrap your head around and diane warren has some real deep dirt on all of them but the uh relative to an incredibly weak field uh speak now i think is a is a lovely song um and has a real sense of, of gravitas to it um it's a really hard come down after a change is going to come but yeah. out of the context of the movie if you're just listening to it on its own i mean a lot of the things that are on the short list this year are are really painful um and this is leslie odom jr flexing all over a, a really tender uh, you know urgent ballad i don't know i got no problem with it he can sing man can sing uh one night miami currently on amazon prime anyone else want to add anything no that's it Change your mind 
All right, so I teased earlier uh, the idea of a movie that should have been a podcast, and uh, we're not going to talk in too much depth about United States versus Billy Holiday, um, except that there is an episode of the NPR podcast through line that is also called the United States versus Billy Holiday that walks through the real story of how the FBI and the you know kind of the beginning of the war on drugs and this really awful racist uh, FBI agent called Harry Anslinger like targeted Billy Holiday, including sending an, an, an undercover informant to follow her. The entire plot of the movie. It's better than the United States versus Billy Holiday and clearer about what actually happens. So I recommend it. See, I mean, podcasts, it's not a bad thing to want to be a podcast. <laughs> I mean, um, there the is movie no has things to recommend it the podcast. beyond that. So but the most interesting, I mean, yes. this is a, they, they really sort of fudge the, the facts as, you know, any biopic is wont to do and some of the very best ever made in my I estimation, uh, really, um, you know, take the ecstatic truth and run with it. But, you know, the thing about, about, um, the agent that Henry Enslinger sends to uh, sort of go undercover, Billy Holiday's entourage, is that it was implied in those in his account and some of the interviews he gave before he died that he was in love with her. It's not it's not overly stated. It's kind of an inference that the interviewer took from that and a story sure. that became the chapter of the book that this movie was adapted from by Lee Daniels. Um, and uh, the movie, you know, understandably runs with that. Uh, and the most interesting wrinkle of that relationship is is that the Travante Rhodes character, after he gets her arrested at the end of the first act, and he like goes to visit her in prison, whatever, is assigned to tail her on tour. And this never happened. I mean, like this is the the thing that I think um, Lee Daniels really has fun with, um, even if you know he turns into such a febrile haze that it's just all overwrought and the hundred and three degree nonsense. But the idea that this guy is just driving behind their tour bus across the country, but also being accepted into their entourage because everybody knows by this point that he is a, is a cop and he is doing heroin with them backstage and he's uh, having sex with, with uh, Billy Holiday. And like, it's this really, it's this confluence of everything the movie's playing with, no matter, you know, how far flung from the facts it is. Um, but eventually, is so far unborn from reality that the movie has no way of getting back to its feet and it falls apart even more than it already has. It is a hot mess. It's the only kind of movie Lee Daniels knows how to make. <laughs> and yet, the other Billy movie that's out right now, uh, Billy Eilish, The World's a Little Blurry, which is on Apple, Apple TV, which David, you like gave a pretty full-fledged rave to. Um, it's many things, but it's not a hot mess. I have not watched the whole thing, but it is a it is maybe precise and observational where uh, United States versus Billy Holiday is very <laughs> in your face. Well, you know, such are the advantages of uh, having several GoPros and, and other cameras in the room with someone while they're recording their um, you know most epochal work, rather than uh, making a movie about a subject who died a long time ago. Um, but the, the level of access that RJ Cutler has to Billie Eilish writing what would come, you know, become the album that made her the youngest person ever sweep the major Grammys and one of the most popular recording artists alive right now, um, from her childhood bedroom or her brother's childhood bedroom in LA. It's pretty extraordinary that it exists at all. And, uh, how did he get in that early? He, I mean, they just asked yeah. early, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I don't oh, know. So he's he like the Paul W. Sanderson to Monster Hunter, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah that's right. that's how he <laughs> tends to refer to himself in interviews mm-hmm. if he can be so bold. He but says, "I'm the Anderson now." <laughs> but uh, it is 
it's a really, I mean, for me, I, what I got took away from it was really a little bit more about, um, the fragility of being a teenager and how important it is to have these things that you love and resonate with you, um, in that vulnerable period of your life. And it's not just the relationship that you think the movie at first is going to be about Billy's relationship with her fans. And it is, and her fans relationship with her, but it's also so much about the role that, that everyone in her life plays for her and vice versa and her own sort of fandom and what it's done for her, for, for Justin Bieber of all people. Um, and, uh, you know, the most moving scene in this two hour and 13 minute documentary complete with an intermission is <laughs> Billy Eilish meeting Justin Bieber for the first time and just being like, so, and this, this is, you know, not at the, at the height of her fame, but long after she's become this sort of supernova pop star and in the middle of the throngs of the crowds at Coachella, literally in the middle, because there are these girded off walkways that cut through the, the crowds, um, meeting Justin Bieber and just like essentially dissolving into molecules and falling apart, um, in a way that she can't control. And sort of, it really sort of crystallizes the fact that in spite of all of its incredible success, she, not only is she in spite of that a at this point in the movie a 17 year old girl but it's also so much her success is because of that um and the feelings that she taps into and that so many people around the world are able to resonate with it's a really fascinating doc even if you um don't have any sort of a bad interest in Billie eilish uh there's a lot yeah i think i I think I do not have enough about interest in Billie eilish to watch the entire thing like two and a half hours is a really tough ask you but will i like be surprised I mean, I liked what I saw of it. I liked seeing her up close and I felt the like teenageness. I, I felt my my old teenage self in her more than I ever had. Like seeing her like, you know, wearing full Gucci with, you know, giant lime green fingernails on the red carpet. Like it's not like that's an image. Like that's all very much part of who she is. I think her authenticity is a big part of her appeal. But I kind of like saw her as a person more than I had before, which I think is, um, you know, what a lot of these kinds of musician documentaries can do. Yeah, and there's also, I mean, even if you couldn't give less of a shit about Billie Eilish, there are scenes that I think will, <laughs> like there's the scene also at Coachella where she meets uh, Orlando Bloom. I, I mean, it's just a murder. It's one of several stone cold murders in this movie, um, but well worth seeking out, even if you just see a clip of it. I mean, poor Orlando Bloom. He has a lot of it coming. I mean, he is not necessarily uh, um, just an innocent bystander here, but. He's uh, fine. Orlando Bloom's fine. After this movie, you should go into hiding for a little while, but we'll emerge fine. Um, but the, uh, it's it's a really fascinating thing to, to watch, and uh, it's on Apple TV Plus. Uh, right now, you get that? I don't really know what that means. I don't know. Do you have to pay extra for that? I can't remember. It's Some people get it with their phones on new, computers. but only for a little while, like a year. I think we're paying for it now. The Tale anyway. of Two Billies. My Lucifer is lonely Standing there, killing time Can't commit to anything but a crime Leaders on vacation An open invitation Animals, evidence Pearly gates look more like a picket fence Once you get inside For this week's segment three, we're going to talk about a new feature film that everyone can watch because it's on HBO Max right now. And that would be the highly anticipated big screen, but on your little screen. Debut. Box office success. Uh, really? Is it making money in? It may, it's like the theaters? second highest grossing opening weekend of the pandemic. Wow. Yes. I'm seeing $39.2 million. We're talking about Tom and Jerry here. Tom and Jerry 
the movie, like, apparently in some territories, but I think it's just Tom and Jerry. Um, this is a Hanna-Barbera adaptation, I guess in the vein of um, like a Space Jam and some of the other WB cartoons. Dave is raising his hand. Dave, jump in. It's not called Tom and Jerry the movie here because Tom and Jerry the movie is a, a bad movie from 1992. Yes, and it is a very bad movie, if I recall correctly, from my childhood. Yes. Um, Yes, not to be confused with that disgrace. Uh, this is a different <laughs> disgrace. Um, maybe. Well, it's debatable. I, I wanted to talk about Tom and Jerry on the podcast because when the trailer kind of crept up like a month and a half ago, I was shocked. I thought it looked really funny and that maybe we would get some true Hanna-Barbera slapstick silliness and that this would be a bit more inventive than I uh, would have expected from like uh, – Let's get Chloe Grace Moretz and a bunch of cartoons and throw them in a New York adventure. I am also a Smurf uh, defender. Apologist. Yeah. Right. I forgot about you and the Smurfs. So knowing that this took place in New York, I'm like, is this the next Smurfs? We got to talk about it. Uh, Tom and Jerry (laughs) is directed by Tim Story, who I was like, what has Tim Story been doing since? I know he had huge hits with the ride along movies with Kevin Hart. He did the Fantastic Four movies, obviously. He did Shaft. Uh, in 2019, that that movie where Shaft and Shaft right. and Shaft are all in a are all together. Wow, three movie. shafts, son of Shaft, Shaft old cube. Shaft. Yeah, um, I don't. I never actually. A saw Shaft that. can't be a cube. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so he's doing Tom and Jerry. Apparently, he'd been developing this movie for quite some time that they were going to do a fully animated version, which probably would have been a better idea, to be honest, and much more enjoyable. But um, I I would love to, and I don't have quotes in front of me here, but like, I don't understand why this movie is live action animation hybrid other than, hey, let's get some famous people who maybe adults will entertain for a while. I, I... I don't even know who this movie is ultimately for. Having watched it, like, it's not funny enough for kids. There's not enough silliness in it for kids. There's a lot of Chloe Grace Moretz faking her way through New York and trying to grift and, like, get jobs. And uh, Michael Pena helping run a hotel. Um, Rob Delaney runs the hotel that she gets a job at. Rob Delaney has a phenomenal mustache. Let's be clear. He does have a good mustache. He's very silly. I enjoy him. Uh, Ken Jeong obviously shows up. He has to do something wacky in a movie like this. He seems to be... uh, He had five minutes in between uh, hosting one episode and done shows on Fox (laughs) or whatever. Uh, Colin Jost is in this movie playing a cardboard cutout um, who smugs a camera sometimes. Uh, who, who likes he, to fly drones around to <laughs> fuck shit up. He's getting married. The premise here is that he's super rich and getting married to this woman uh, played by Pallavi Sharda. I'm not too familiar with her, but um, they're going to have a big uh, wedding in this fancy hotel Chloe Grace Barrett's faking it until she makes it. Uh, she actually ruins a woman's life to get this job. Um, a woman flies mm-hmm. in from the UK. She has so much experience, but Chloe Grace Barrett's ruins her life and kicks her out and fakes it. And I mean, but don't feel too bad. for it at the end. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, but yeah, so so there's lots. Colin of- Jost ruins people's life by playing with toys too much. Like that's literally his character flaw. That's well, his his arc is strange because he's awful, and the the end of the movie. We're going full spoilers in the Tom and Jerry review here. I just want to be clear. <laughs> um, just like we went full spoilers with One Night in Miami. Uh, <laughs> he is an awful person who is self obsessed and loves being rich. And the and the end of the movie is like, wait, we got to get him back together. We got to get this woman 
married to no. Colin Jost. It's like, no, mm-hmm. let her go. No, no, you don't. No, she made <laughs> choice. Chloe Grace Moretz, you should. I there was a moment in the movie where I thought Chloe Grace Moretz and Pallavi Sharda were gonna like kiss and be in a relationship and like discover each other. It was very that would have been sensual moment. Wild. That would have been a very different. And, but also, story. like, why not do that in a Tom and Jerry movie? Because the movie's not about them. I mean, I guess that's why you don't distract. I mean, I guess you don't do it because it's a little off topic for the young audience and there'll be a whole Fox News can of worms to rip open but yeah I have to say I speaking of young audience I've tried twice to get Charlie to watch this movie because I had to watch it for this podcast and he did not want to watch it but he has watched Detective Pikachu two and a half times in the time since I've tried to get him to watch Tom and Jerry so that makes sense well maybe that's Detective Charlie's Pikachu has review. a story and has like cute animals who do things Tom and Jerry are so <laughs> They don't do anything in this movie. What is this movie? Why is why, this movie? Why do they, they not talk and all the other animals talk? Why? Is great, that is a great question. And not only do they talk, I mean, there's a lot of... Again, think, yeah, because Tom and Jerry, the movie, because, where they the, do talk and it, talk. it was horrible. It was a horrible well, I decision. I don't think I want Tom and Jerry to talk. I just want it to be consistent. Like, maybe none of the animals talk. I would also have been okay with that because there are not good animal lines. Like, no. you would expect, if we were talking about a good children's movie, for us to have, like, maybe, like, oh, yeah, and there's this one character voiced by this one comedian that we like, and he got some good lines in. None of that. There yeah. are side animals that talk, but they just, they don't, they don't exist to talk for a reason. There yeah, the a- energy of this movie is not unlike Secret Life of Pets, in terms of, like, animals having a caper <laughs> around New York, but that movie's all animated. But that movie has comedians doing the, the animals and their characters that stand out in some way. But there are, like, there are all these, like, funnily animated animal characters and you're like oh are the elephants gonna have good lines no nobody has good lines in this movie yep the um okay so i'm gonna say this thing i said to java and i'm like i'm probably not gonna say this on the podcast but here we are do it as somebody who keeps in my crusade to get people to just admit that minstrelry was a thing everyone keeps bringing up fucking dumbo how are three pigeons doing black culture in this movie any fucking different why is there not a content warning on my tom and jerry movie that's well can you if you don't mind dig a little deeper into that comparison because not only the you know tim story uh, a black he's voicing he's voicing he is voicing the birds that you're talking about here um there is a lot of hip-hop in the movie and it and but there's also a lot of chloe grace barrettes and mostly white people in this movie and i don't like there's a culture clash going on in the whole thing it's it's more that this movie opens up with three birds singing bone thugs in harmony and break dancing in the middle of the air and i'm like how is this any different okay but name 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 one great film that doesn't open that way that's true (laughs) i'm just i'm just saying like just because the pigeon isn't named jim crow this is somehow like if you, if you make like birds doing like black culture for the entertainment of your animal and white protagonists, I don't. It's it's. I don't think the movie's thinking about it. I just more want more credit for being like Dumbo is something we should acknowledge because it's like it's an echo, right? It's Why are there three fucking singing narrating birds in this movie? But it's like, but minstrelsy being considered something that was considered offensive at the time by black people, uh, even if it was, you know, and it largely performed by white people, as opposed to pigeons lip syncing to existing rap songs. That yeah, yes. Fair, I guess. Yes, the, it's, the it's, pigeons are more authentic. The pigeons are more are, authentic. They are mimicking an actual authentic culture created by black people as a 
opposed to like a pretty condescending and racist character of it. Right. Okay. That's the difference, right? So it's it's yeah, I don't I, think I, I, don't, I, totally think agree a, I don't think it's a Dumbo are, situation. The scene totally where Chloe Grace Moretz wears blackface, I found very offensive. <laughs> um <laughs> And that Colin Yeah, it was weird that they uh, they had that scene that they it was from music, Sia's music, but they yeah. cut it and put it <laughs> they slipped it in this movie somehow. I mean, that's not even the the my main issue with Tim's story in this movie. Uh, my main issue with Tim's story in this movie is he lit everything so that he could have 2D animation with rim lights look the same as people. But you can't light people that evenly and not have it look like a Netflix movie. This movie looks fucking horrible. Two, the reason why you like Tom and Jerry, or the reason why you like Who Framed Roger Rabbit and you don't like Tom and Jerry is because Who Framed Roger Rabbit has such care in the interactions between people and the animated elements. This has none, none. of that. None. They're none. Like, they're like two scenes maybe where Chloe There's a scene Grace where Chloe Grace Moretz gives a high Tom. five. She gives a high yeah, five yeah. to Tom in one scene and it like barely connects and registers. Very Not even strange. the high fives, even eye lines. When they're talking, there's a scene where Chloe Grace Moretz is like, let's make a deal to Tom and Jerry. And you know, they're constantly cutting from a two shot of Tom and Jerry to Chloe Grace Moretz. I'm like, this should be a three shot. These are your main characters having like the moment of your movie. And it's like, this is, they just didn't want to and it's line not just up that. the eyelines. It's like the whole script is divorced for like, there's the human plot. And then there's Tom and Jerry who occasionally are chasing each other in the hallways of, of a real hotel. For and some messing reason. things up. For like the, they have nothing to do with each other. And every so often, Chloe Grace Moretz comes to Tom and is like, did you get Jerry yet? Did this movie should have here? been called Hanna Barbera. Chloe get Grace's Chloe Moretz character's name Hannah, and you just put in more characters that we know. Wait, Whoa. but did, did Holly hotel just... Hotel Hanna Barbera? Hotel Hanna Barbera. Staying in the hotel is a different Hanna Barbera character. Yeah, but you have like Jost the Yogi Bear and stuff. This movie where he plays a guy who gets married to this rich, beautiful woman at a fancy hotel, so that he could afford in real life to be this guy who gets married to a rich, beautiful woman at what. Presumably was going to be a fantasy. He's marrying rich. He doesn't have to work ever again in his life. Here's okay. Here's here's something. Replace uh, Joe's character with Tom. Does the movie work better? Tom is is going to get married. A human. Yeah, Tom's marrying. But he's not allowed to talk. We don't want him to talk. No, but I think it'd be that would that would actually be easier to write around if he's just like a video game eccentric woman who's going to marry her cat at the hotel. I mean, that would be fine. Uh, it's just, uh, it's, I mean, it's kind of, it kind of like, feels, I mean, I'm still stuck on Colin Jost. It kind of feels like a heel turn for him to appear in something so irredeemable because he, you know, he can feel himself in the public eye, you know, whether deserved or not being closer to being sort of like universally loathed and seen as this positive figure. I mean, there's everything going for him. He's a square jawed, rich white guy who, from the public's perspective, doesn't do very much work, although I'm sure his job on Saturday Night Live is more demanding than we realize and clearly is marrying very well. Uh, but, you know, it just feels like at a certain point there was so much backlash to every everything he does in Weekend Update and his entire shtick is a mediocre white man who's over-exceeding over that... Uh, he was just leaning into it by being in a Tom and Jerry movie. I mean, I can think of no other explanation of all the movies that he could find shooting in London over whatever period of time he was there for this. To be it is it. a weird. It is a weird choice that why he's in this movie at all. And he and- keeps almost like laughing every time he delivers dialogue. He he has a real Jimmy Fallon 
on SNL vibe where he's so <laughs> smug you just expect him to start cackling because he thinks it's so dumb but it's a, that's annoying like get into the movie there's or get in that... a fight with a cat like I, why isn't he punched in the face at some point there's like the big scene where Chloe Grace Moretz has to like own up to like being a fraud and Colin Jost for some reason is also sitting there being like we're very disappointed in you like he doesn't work at the hotel why does he give a shit and he's just like <laughs> trying to like give a serious face and look like he's feeling human emotion and not getting there at all Katie, I need your judgment here. I was reading a little about uh, Chloe Grace Barrett's taking on this role. She's done some press, uh, and she was talking to Yahoo about her performance being inspired by both Bob Hoskins in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is uh, just a dumb... Sure. That's inspired by Bob, Bob, gonna... Bob Hoskins in Mona Lisa. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but she also said she was inspired by actresses Sandra Bullock, Jennifer Aniston, Lucille Ball, and Meg Ryan. Do you get any of those notes from this performance? And what the hell is she talking about? She's just naming, like, <laughs> famous female comedians to try to put herself on that level. I think she's fine in this movie. Like there's not much that she can do one way or another, given what the movie asks for her. But like also Michael Pena is not that good. And this should be like a walk in the park for him. Like this kind of like scheming, like side character thing. He should be great. But at. Again, he's not he getting doesn't... swept up in the cartoon aspect of it. That's the, pro- he's, he should be like chasing the cat or chasing Jerry or getting smushed on but the head. When, with a Patches, giant when you're talking about when, when Dave is talking about why this movie looks so shitty. And when you're talking about why it exists in the form that it does at all, I can't help but feel like this kind of, aberrant like 2d live action hybrid is the only way to get this classical animation onto big or supposedly big screens these days and why it looks so shitty is because all the people who made this their stock and trade for so long uh are out of the business and uh, if you want to find someone who can animate as well as it would needed to be able to mimic what it looked like in the you know time gone by then you would probably need to go i mean actually on IndieWire, there is a story about the um, animation studio that, that worked on this frame store, and they apparently hired 3D animators, quote-unquote, with a passion for 2D animation, and it's like, that's not that's not the what same thing as getting well, 2D animators. And also, someone on Twitter pointed out that the Rube Goldberg device that Tom oh, makes I want to talk about this scene. ...is actually from an episode. Like, the Tom and Jerry antics that you see... Are playing the greatest hits of Tom and Jerry to the point where, like, you're not really you're not really animating them. You're you're remixing them into like another like form. Huh. Like, there's nothing that Tom and Jerry do in this movie that I'm like, oh, Tom and Jerry are getting into some new stuff. It's not even like the itchy and scratchy movie ele- elevation where it's like he finally gets itchy, you know, like something like that, like that we would make fun of. There's nothing in here, literally nothing in here that I haven't seen before. The best case scenario is like me having recognition and being like, "Aha, steam's coming out of his ears," and you could. That's because that's because Jerry's in there, and it's in brighter colors than last time. Yeah, they're not uh, using the environment. There's not like I can't think of a set piece where it's cool to see how the how the cartoon characters are interacting with the real. There's like forty. The there's like up. a forty second sequence. It's a panorama in a hotel room. They fuck up, and it's the only good one that they pull off. Yeah, because they have a, a self breaking TV. They have stuff falling off the walls. They try to recreate it for the wedding sequence, but because you've already established that all your animals are animated, most of that shit's not there. Like for the wedding yeah. sequence, most of what they did is pull tables out of the way, which is like worse than the Ghostbusters joke. So like it's really not good interaction, even if you like it wasn't planned by an animator. 
no, no, maybe it was planned by an animator. So, like, the thing about, like, the cool thing about Who Framed Roger Rabbit, whatever, is, like, they don't have locked-off shots. They don't have, like, they have, have different lighting sources that move sometimes, and all these things make it harder to draw. This is just, like, flat, locked-off, similar angles. They're copying Hanna-Barbera sketches and just, like, making them look 3D with the slightest bit of edge lighting, which, again, works fine if you're trying to make a sphere look like it's a real sphere, but when you light people so that they look like they're in the same environment as that, and they just look like bright and plastic and there's no shadows in this movie that are like completely black. It's really, it's really messy. That's just what was the Rube Goldberg? What, what pissed you off about the Rube Goldberg yeah, machine? Yeah, I, I got to talk about being triggered by this scene um, <laughs> on a few different levels. One, so I spent the weekend watching OK Go music videos. This was our new... <laughs> truly, truly some of the most deranged to... words ever spoken. <laughs> Wait, did you show them to your to your child? Yes, because I was like, yeah, will, my, will a three-year-old be entertained by this? The answer was, hell yes, she oh, was. Oh, yeah, I bet she a, was. A lot. Yeah, we um, need to watch my those. My hot take here is that the OK Go music videos are great, and the songs are great. They're great because the music is actually good. That's my OK Go take. Um right. But they're they're so fun because the the Rube Goldbergs that they design are real. Like, and the camera takes us through them, and we see it happen. Like YouTube, uh, there's a Rube Goldberg YouTube video that goes viral every year, just because someone did it right. And yeah. here, you don't get that sensation at all. You're going through like step by step, but you're kind of swinging through CG. And I'm not sure even all the elements in this Rube Goldberg are real. Um, and if it's a homage to Tom, a Tom and Jerry episode that did not register with me at all. And, and there's no like Tom and Jerry interaction. It's so stupid. And then just the idea that they would build a Rube Goldberg to catch Jerry, even though it takes so long for him to fall, the cage. Yeah, he's to like fall. standing there waiting for the cage to fall on him. Many levels of stupid from that yeah. scene. Uh, just show me the Rube Go- I love a Rube Goldberg. Just show me the Rube Goldberg. Build yeah, the machine for real. Just show me a real. Rube Goldberg device. Uh, uh, how long before you and your daughter are building a Rube Goldberg machine together on the weekend? I feel like we need to start immediately if we're going yep. to go viral. Is it her like video? Hot Wheels tower, like half the way there for her? <laughs> yeah, that's true. true. The toys are becoming more elaborate and Rube Goldbergian. Uh, <laughs> uh, we should have a contest. I feel like a Rube Goldberg machine building uh, contest in, uh, between the two of us would work this out. This is well. a total aside, but I've been thinking, can you rent Pinewood Derby tracks? Any listeners out there who would like to help me stage a Pinewood Derby? Uh, I used to do Pinewood Derby with boy uh boy scouts you know what i'm talking yeah. about everyone's oh, giving yeah. don't you just, it's right like now. soapbox don't, derby you see yeah first of all i imagine yes you could rent them from places that you can definitely you know, get the kids to jam- make your own do jamborees wood. yeah but i would say also you should build one you should build a, while she's building the car you build the ramp i don't think my three-year-old could use a jigsaw to build her own <laughs> Uh, Pinewood Derby. <laughs> While well, she's yes. sanding yes. the thing you jigsaw. Okay. You know what yes. I mean. Yes, yes. Sounds right. like a I uh, Tom just and Jerry cartoon. My own. You know how to um, make a Pinewood Derby car, so interest yourself with learning how to make anyway, a Pinewood Derby Anyway, the point derby is, car. I'm going to send you all Pinewood Derby kits that you would have to make and send back to me, and then I'll put them in my contraption. We'll have a fighting in the war room Pinewood Derby content. Yeah. Wow. Um, that was my big takeaway from Tom not and Jerry. Not ending, so may as well just do it. Tom and Jerry, I'm so disappointed. There's nothing funny in this movie. No. Why isn't there... No. Oh, there sorry. There is a funny. funny. There is a funny moment early on in the movie where Chloe Grace Moretz is like talking to a goldfish in a bowl and makes some kind of joke about having an aquatic center. And Michael Payne is just like, "No, he's like he the aquatics out. director." Yeah, 
that that scene is funny. That is Michael Pena doing what he should have been doing in the whole movie, which is like being the overstuffed straight man, taking these cartoon animals very, very seriously. What if I like uh, whatever the hotel manager when someone's like, you know, like, why are there why are there animals like in the bar? And he's like, he's an employee. Tom's an employee. He has a name tag. It's a name tag. That's Rob Delaney's line, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Chloe Grace Moretz's role has been played by Chloe Zhao and Tom's role had been played by Tom Skerritt and Jerry had been played by the computer from Sphere and Colin <laughs> Jost had been played by uh, Colin He's Bumstead. Oh. Colin Bumstead of the Ben Wheatley film I've never seen. Uh, you're something, your anus, Colin Bumstead. You're, you're a, I can't remember what it's called. Wow. You know what I'm talking okay. about. And uh, who else is in this movie? Uh, Michael Pena <laughs> played by um, uh, the Renaissance poet and pa- sorry, painter uh, Michelangelo. Or the Ninja Turtle, maybe alternating scenes between the two in like mm-hmm. a Boonwellian mm-hmm. affectation. Michelangelo the anyway. turtle as Michelangelo the... No, no, no. But when it's Michelangelo the painter, he thinks he's the turtle. That's right. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, what if? I'm writing that? this down and pitching this to Tim's yeah. story tomorrow. I, yeah, I love a pizza. No, That's how I'm, he talks, I'm right? afraid I'm cutting Tim's story out of this equation, but I am no. taking this directly to HBO Max. Yeah, you uh, they've got 10%. their little things money and uh, nothing to do with it. So, <laughs> Does, uh, Should I be worried about Space Jam 2 based on how much I did not like watching Tom and Jerry? I thought you about Space sh- Jam 2. You should be worried about Space Jam 2 for multiple reasons. I feel the biggest among them being Terrence Nance uh, quitting, being fired, whatever happened. Well, I like Malcolm D. Lee, I think, who is now directing that movie, so. Yeah, but as someone who is currently in the middle of reviewing Chaos Walking, uh, it's never, you know, even if they settle on an interesting director, it's never great when a big Hollywood movie uh, starts by shooting for the moon with these interesting people and then brings them a little bit along the way and then fires them in favor of someone who is really just going to make the safest possible version of the movie they always wanted to make in the first place. Yeah. That is a that is a good point. This Tom and Jerry started with Tom, Tim Story, and Tim Story made it, so it doesn't always work go. out in the opposite either, I guess. But um, he achieved his dreams. He wanted to make a movie with Colin Jost, and by God, <laughs> that was that was how it all started. Can I make a Colin Jost movie? No, we can't. What we movie? Can't can this man be made a movie star? It's impossible. Ah. How how can I lower a plot to make? Colin Jost interesting. Wait a minute. <laughs> what if it was actually a Tom and Jerry movie? We can't stare. That's like staring at the sun. You can't just look. You can't just watch Colin Jost's movie. We need to dilute this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Poor Colin yes, Jost. Unfortunately, we had, they had to put uh, wrapping pigeons in the movie to mm-hmm. counterbalance the bright whiteness of Colin Jost. It's all balanced now. And uh, it's bad, unfortunately. If you want a taste of it yourself, it is on HBO Max, Tom and Jerry right now. It's actually not permanently on HBO Max. I think if there was a post credit scene, fades away. Call, there Colin is a post credit scene. No, if there, there were, if there were a post credit scene, <laughs> no one dot that. dot dot one night in Miami dot dot dot. We left off the ellipses for savings, where he explained how he inures himself to the daily deluge of criticism, and the answer isn't. I'm, which, I'm guessing the answer is just money and lots of it, but yeah. uh, that the rest of us are lacking. But if he has any secrets, uh, I'd love to hear them. It would almost be worth the time price of admission. I taught Charlie to look for post-credit scenes because of uh, we were looking for them in Detective Pikachu. 
it you taught him there, to look well, for post-credit scenes. The well, next like, generation I was like, is let's lost. go see if there's something after the credits. He's so proud. And I know. And there wasn't anything, but now he's like brought it up being like, let's see if there's anything after the credits. Oh, my God. Someday we'll be rewarded. I just saw a movie in Berlin. This is I've never really seen this before. Um, a movie in Berlin is Daniel Bruhl's directorial debut. And Vicky Creeps is billed as being one of the people in the movie. She does not appear on camera until the mid-credit scene at the end of the film. Wow. After the title card at the end of the movie advertising Vicky Creeps. That's so that comes nice. up and you're like, wait, what? And then she shows up. Wild. But I will be, of course. Uh, if you want my more Colin that. Jost after you watch Tom and Jerry, stick around after the credits. You get one more Colin Jost zinger. Boy, uh, I will be teaching my son that uh, any any footage he sees in the middle or after the credits of a movie is the work of Satan uh, and is evil, and uh, he should go and tell a teacher. I just realized why Charlie X just figured it out is because Big Zero hit Big Big Hero Six has a post credit scene. What with Stan, on with uh, Stan Lee shows up as T.J. Miller's father. It's it's uh, not a great <laughs> thing to uh, introduce your child to, but Charlie doesn't know who either of those people are. Wowie zowie. Uh, <laughs> wow, that has me thinking about uh, Disney's Arena of Heroes or whatever the fuck that game is called. And then also about, of course, our, our weekly feature on Disney's uh, Star Wars Galaxy Stop. of Heroes. God and Dave and, I, Dave and I need to do a, post, a post-credit Christ. powwow on this episode of the podcast about um about the new conquest mode that's been added to galaxy of heroes tom and jerry it's on hbo max good god All right, that does it for this week's show. We have planned out what we're going to talk about for segment three for a while ahead of time. So I'm going to tell you all about it right now so you can watch along with us. Next week, we're talking about The World to Come, which is coming to uh, VOD on March 2nd. So you can rent it now. Um, it is a uh, period drama about two women on the frontier. It's really good. Vanessa Kirby's in it. Watch it. After that, on the week of March 15th, we'll be talking about Defending Your Life, which is on HBO Max. The week after that... Womp womp. We'll be talking about the Snyder Cut, also on HBO Max. Ah, that's womp, Justice womp. League, the Snyder Cut. You can't just watch any Snyder movie that he had final cut on. That's fair. Yeah, uh, the don't watch is, it, is it one of, of those uh, things Watchmen. that, that doesn't, doesn't see you if you don't move? If we just stay perfectly still, it's maybe the Snyder Cut will pass us by. Uh, I just realized we're going really deep on HBO Max, and maybe we should uh, spread our wings at some point. But not yet, because the week after the Steiner Cut, the week of March 29th, we're talking about Search Party. Search Party Season 4, right, Patches? You want to make sure we get up to the current date? I, I hope you do, because we should talk about every season is a different journey. Uh, Elisa, Elisa after watching Search Party the first entire season with me, and then uh, threatening to quit every couple of minutes during the second season, just pulled the ripcord in the middle of the third episode of the second season. Um, she no, is someone. She is someone who hates, like, with, with a violent passion, misunderstandings in stories. Oh, uh, and, um, this was not for her. Just seemed to, uh, even though she laughs along with every episode, really reached her limit. Um, so I may, I may be on my own to finish the rest of the show. All right, and then one more. April 5th, the week of that, we're talking about Godzilla vs. Kong. No number of reviews can oh, stop shit. it. Katie said it on the so, podcast. Bum, 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 bum. Yeah, I mean, we're talking a lot about HBO Max, but they're the only people with shit. 
Uh, I mean, Netflix is bum, releasing bum, all bum, kinds bum. of shit, so we'll probably. Is, but bum, that bum, is bum, shitty bum. shit, and HBO Max <laughs> seems to have good stuff. I don't know why. Why isn't there anything good on Netflix? I've really been wondering this lately. Should I cancel Netflix? Uh, I don't know. Why I does mean, it feel like I can't do that? Wait till I talk about Michelle Obama's kids' puppet show in a couple weeks, and maybe I'll uh, mochi, mochi and waffles, and waffles and mochi. Um, all right. So watch those. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patch's senior editor at Polygon. Minor self-promotion. We're doing a really cool package right now about uh, being extremely online and all the forms of entertainment that we don't talk a lot about on the podcast. Do we ever talk about TikTok on the podcast, folks? I can't remember. I feel like... Um, I feel like we did one time. But, well, Emo emo is coming back uh, on TikTok. And if you want to read about that, you should. Emo never went away, you coward. But I would uh, would also recommend reading this story about uh, my coworker who has three televisions in his living room. That seems to be podcast-appropriate reading for everybody here. Three televisions in one living room! Um, Anyway... We fightingthewarroom.com is also a place where you can go to find old content um, and if you I have another coworker who listens to podcasts plays video games and watches TV at the same time so maybe fighting in the war room is the, is the thing for you if you do that I'm David Ehrlich I am uh, I don't know tough times I am uh, I'm on the Twitter I work at IndieWire. Uh, you can find I'm on Clubhouse as of tonight. Apparently, hey, I just you, got a Clubhouse. Let's Clubhouse though, together sometime. Even though somebody took that my is, that is what we're doing right now. No, oh, it's, shit. it is absolutely. <laughs> oh, I, mean, I I will have no involvement. But I uh, I somebody took my username. There's already a David Erlock from Clubhouse. It is not me. Uh, I am I'm David. Erlich I wish by another name. I wish I I wish that was me. I uh, I don't know who it is, but I hope that they. Uh, don't drag my name through the mud. This is the first time that ever happened on the internet. Uh, you can find all of us together on iTunes. If fighting in the war room, please leave us a review. Uh, I just noticed that hashtag Dion Warwick has her own Twitter emoji. Is that the first person? It's the first time a person who is not in like a new piece of work, but just for existing, has their own. Just for tweeting. It's like a photo real little tweet. Yeah, just for tweeting. Are you it's just impressive. waiting for when Twitter gives you your own emoji for tweeting? God no. I'm trying to think of ways that Twitter could somehow make my already miserable experience worse. That feels like it's pretty high on the list. Um, but please, uh, no emojis necessary. Go on iTunes, Fighting the War Room, leave us a review. We'll read it on the show. It's great fun for everyone. You'll love it. You'll feel more fulfilled as a person. It'll make the pandemic go shorter. It's the next best thing to a vaccine. And you can take that to the hospital. <laughs> I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can follow me on Twitter at DA70. You can hear me talk about Lost on the Storm, a Lost rewatch podcast. And yeah, that's the thing. Those are the things. Uh, and I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com. On the Little Goldman podcast this week, it's already out. We had a special Golden Globes episode. So uh, listen to it. Matt Patches appears to be taking a picture of us on his Zoom right now. It's unnerving. Uh, I took a I took a picture of my clubhouse for my clubhouse account. Follow me on Clubhouse. I'm pivoting. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K A T E Y R I C H, and we're all on Twitter at F I T W R. All right, where I guess you can tell us to join you on Clubhouse or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was If you could watch a movie on the big screen with 50 of your friends and everyone would be safe, what movie are you programming? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week.
再见。